If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 15 this morning. And we are picking back up where we left off two weeks ago, Romans chapter 15. And we're going to begin in verse 7 and read down to verse 13 this morning. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and reading along there with me. And before we look at God's word, let's go to him in prayer and pray with me, would you, that God would bless abundantly this congregation this morning under the preaching and hearing and believing of his word. Let's pray. Our God, again, we ask that you would do for us once more what you have already done for us in showing us mercy in Christ. We ask that we would know times of refreshing from your presence. We ask that you would renew our minds and hearts and that you would recalibrate us in the knowledge of Christ, in the knowledge of your will, that you would make us a people who live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. We pray that you would instruct us and teach us. We pray that you would give us humble hearts. We pray that you would give us teachable hearts. We pray that you would uh, till up the soil of our hearts, that we might receive your word on good soil and bear fruit 30, 60, even a hundredfold. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be present with us as the great worship leader of your church, as our prophet, priest, and king. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Beginning in verse 7 there, the Apostle Paul, still in that section about the weak and the strong, now says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, today is Reformation Sunday, and some of you maybe came expecting to hear some story about the Reformation, and you will indeed hear a story about the Reformation. And the story I want to tell you is a story that coincides perfectly with the passage in front of us. And it's a story that goes back to 1555, where John Calvin, having given up a lucrative career in law, having left a wealthy family and having left the Roman Catholic Church in order to proclaim the truthfulness of God and the gospel of God to a world that was in darkness, had established one little church, one tiny church in France out of Geneva by 1555. And as Calvin labored as a theologian, as a pastor in Geneva, training men and equipping um, hundreds and thousands of men for gospel ministry and planting of reformed churches so that men could have their consciences free from the bondage of Roman Catholicism, as Calvin trained those men, he was sending those men out. And by 1559, there were over 100 churches in France, and by 1562, there were 2,150 churches. 1555, there was one church. 
1562, there were 2,150 Reformed churches throughout France. And not only did Calvin labor in sending out missionaries to France and church planters in France, but he sent 12 missionaries to Brazil. And in a very real sense, John Calvin can be said to be, have become a servant to Geneva in order to be a servant to France and a servant to Brazil with the gospel. And his labors had a ripple out effect so great that you are the recipients of the faithfulness of John Calvin. John Calvin poured himself out, gave up a lucrative career in law. And today in 2014, so many hundreds of years later, we are the beneficiaries of a man who poured himself out in service to others. And I tell you that because the Apostle Paul, as he's in this section about the weak and the strong and the weak not pleasing themselves and the, uh, the strong not pleasing themselves and the weak not despising the strong and we've dealt with all those sticky issues of conscience and how that works in the church, Paul will now almost seamlessly take us from the call to unity in the, in the body and, and mutual care for one another and reception of one another in the body, and he will move seamlessly to the Lord Jesus and what he did to create that unity and that mutual affection, and then he will move out in the rest of this book to talk about his missionary labors. And there's a correlation. You wouldn't see it if you read this chapter very quickly. There's a correlation between how we live and how we act in the body and what happens in regard to God's mission in the world. And notice that the apostle has told us there as he brings that first section of the weak bearing with the strong to a close in verse 7. He gives that summary statement, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul has done uh, three times in this chapter already in just the first 13 verses. He has taken everything back to Christ. Notice that, as we've already noted a couple weeks ago in verse 3, that we are told not to please ourselves, but to seek to please our brethren. And, it's, and Paul says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so if we are to learn in the body what it means not to please ourselves, we look at the Lord Jesus. And again, as Paul unpacks this and now tells the church to welcome one another and not to have schismatic little cliques of fellowship in the church, but that the church would mutually accept one another with a warm-hearted embrace of one another, the apostle then tells them that we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Christ bore your reproach with which we have reproached God. He took the wrath on himself, but then Christ welcomed men and women from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. And then finally, now Paul is going to tell us that we are to pour our lives out in service to one another because Christ became a servant to the, to the circumcised, to the Jews, so that we might be the beneficiaries of God's saving mercy. Today we're going to look at three things in this text. First, we're going to see the model, secondly, the motivation, and thirdly, the mission that Paul tells us about as we pursue that mutual welcoming of one another. Now, there's something that most commentators miss, and as I meditated on this text and 
It's always good to think through where's Paul going? How is he transitioning? Where is he moving? Has he introduced something new or is he still established on something? And almost every commentator is going to tell you that verse 13 is sort of an end to this section that began all the way back in chapter 12, verse 1 with that benediction. And then Paul's going to tell you about his missionary journeys. And then he's going to greet all these people he never met in this church, but obviously he knew because he knows all about their lives. And he was a man that prayed for them and a man that cared deeply about all the churches. And yet the section ends in verse 13. And so the question is, how is verse 8 to verse 13? 12 related to what has gone before. And if I I don't confuse you, allow me to try to unpack this. I think that what Paul is doing is he is dealing with a church in which the strong are those Gentile believers who have had their consciences enlightened in the liberty that they have in Christ. They understand all the full benefits they have in Jesus. They understand their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. They understand that they can eat and drink whatever they want to eat and drink. Paul's made that abundantly clear. They are not men that live with a guilty conscience uh, by using God's creation. And, And the weak are those Jewish converts, most likely, who think that in some way in the Christian life they still have to abstain from certain foods and from drink. And it seems that some of them were only vegetarians and that they thought that that was pleasing to God. And some of them are observing days and months and they're, they're still observing some of those ceremonial things and they have not had their consciences awakened to the full realization of what they have in Christ and the freedom they have in Christ. And here's the twist. The strong are despising the weak, the weak are judging the strong, the strong in this case are the Gentile believers, the weak are the Jewish believers, but now Paul turns the table. And what Paul essentially does after calling for that mutual acceptance and warm-hearted embrace in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, he gives us the model of this welcoming. And as he gives us the model of this welcoming, what Paul does, he turns the table and he essentially goes back in redemptive history to the Old Covenant. And he essentially says that in the Old Covenant, Essentially, the Jews were the stronger group and the Gentiles were the weaker group because God had given specific promises to Abraham and to his descendants and God had marked off a people for himself. He had set apart the Jewish nation as the visible manifestation of his kingdom and he had worked in that people and he had not worked in any other people with the exception of Nineveh. There's rare one-off foreshadowings of what was to come. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were the stronger. They were covenantally blessed. They were externally blessed and set apart as the the visible church in the world. And the Gentiles would have been and were viewed as the weaker brethren. And so what Paul does as he gives us the model of welcoming is he says that Christ, who is God over all, became a servant to the Jews in order to bless the Gentiles. He became a servant even to those that thought they were stronger because of all their privileges. He humbled himself and became an absolute servant unto the point of death so that Gentiles like us might be redeemed. It's a remarkable twist. You can see how Paul looks in the scriptures and he sees an answer to every problem outlined in the Bible, in the storyline of scripture, in all the details of God's redemptive history. There is always an answer to the problems that the churches face. And Paul sees that answer in how Christ humbled himself and became a model 
became a model of pouring himself out in service. Notice verse 8, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, let me say this this morning, that one of the things when we think about the Lord Jesus that we must think is that his entire life was a life of service. Jesus Christ is the only person that ever walked this earth who every second of his life was a second of conscious, purposeful service leading to the point of death on the cross. This is what Paul says in Philippians, isn't it? That he humbled himself. He made himself of no reputation. He took to himself the form of a slave he, he took on the appearance of man, yet without sin. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let me say this this morning, because we are all very selfish people. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. We're all very selfish. Jesus never had one selfish moment in his life. There's never one selfish moment. Not one selfish thought. Not one selfish word. Not one selfish action on Jesus' part. His entire life was a life of service. Now, here's, here's the glorious thing about what Paul's going to do, because you might think, well, that's right, Jesus serves me, and I need, you do need him to serve you. I've often said to this congregation, when Jesus tells Peter, unless I serve you, you have no part with me, the biggest thing that you need is Jesus to serve you. That's the biggest thing you need, is not to run out and figure out how you can work and serve others so that somehow you can have a sophisticated, uh, conscious standing before God in your mind and, and twist everything that the scriptures say. The biggest need is that you receive Jesus' service to you via his death and resurrection. That's the biggest need. But let me say that, this, that was not the most important thing in the mind of Jesus. Notice what Paul says at the end of verse 7. Notice that as he's moving to the model of Christ, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And you might say, well, see there, he's saying Christ welcomed us, so he's serving us, he's serving me. And, and that's Jesus was always about serving people. But notice what Paul says in verse 7, for the glory of God. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, that even above what Jesus did in serving us, Jesus was serving his Father and seeking his glory. Gerhardus Voss says this better than anyone I've read. Underneath the service rendered by Jesus to men lay a service rendered to God. He gave his life for men, but he gave it to God. It's a remarkable statement. Jesus didn't give his life to you. He, he gave his life for you. He offered up his life to his father. When he hung on the cross, Jesus said, into your hands, I commit my spirit to the father. The first cry on the cross, father, forgive them. Jesus always sought to do the father's will. He always sought to bring the father glory. If the father said, my son, I want you to redeem a people to myself and my majesty and my grace and my mercy and my justice and all my attributes will be displayed in you hanging in their place on the cross. Jesus said, I will do that, my father, because I want you to have glory. And so what underlies all of the call for us to to welcome one another and to live in harmonious fellowship with one another is a seeking first the glory of God. You know, it's a 
It's the saddest thing in the world in churches, and it happens in every church, and it'll happen in this church if it hasn't already, is that cliques are formed, and private fellowships happen, and murmuring and gossip and, and, and self-interested division occur, and people talk in private about other people, and it's the ugliest thing in the world because we have set before us the Lord Jesus, who poured out his life. He went down. He took the lowest spot. You know, I've often, I've often wondered as I've read through the Gospels how, how cruel we must be by nature. There's the blind man begging outside Jericho, and the people are saying, shut up. Tell him to shut up. Go away. Don't bother the teacher. A man who legitimately needs care, a man that legitimately needs the service of others. And yet Jesus stops and I love, in the account of blind Bartimaeus, he's heading to the cross, and Bartimaeus is crying out, have mercy on me, son of David, and he stops. He stops for one poor, blind, dejected sinner. He stopped for one poor outcast. Jesus showed no partiality. You know, When factions start and when cliques arise and when partiality is shown in the church, it's for one reason and one reason only. People stop seeking the glory of God. They stop seeking the glory of God. They start to seek their own self-interest. They, they start to be motivated by their own selfish desires, their own desires for power or affluence or influence or control. And, and at ground zero of that, is a failure to see that we are here for the glory of God. You know, there's this almost throwaway verse in Isaiah where God says, I've created you for my glory. It's almost a throwaway verse. Why why are we here? God says, I've created you for my glory. God is going to get glory, no matter whether we give it to him or not. He will get glory. He will get glory from all the wrath of men. He gets glory from what's going on in the Middle East right now. He gets glory from everything. God will get glory from everything. God is going to display all of his attributes. He's going to show forth his justice. He's going to show forth his mercy and grace. God is in heaven, and he will do whatever he wants, but he has revealed to us what he wants. And Jesus took up what the Father told him. And notice what Paul says, he became a servant to the circumcised. Think about the humility that took for Jesus, the God who had created the nation of Israel. And after all those thousands of years of rebellion and idolatry and wickedness and worshiping other gods and rejecting him, God came. He came to a people that he had created and he became a servant to them. He served them with signs and wonders and miracles. He served them with healings. He served them with his teaching. He served them with the gospel. He said to those that, that had rejected him, how I long to have gathered your children under my wings. And every second of Jesus' life and ministry was a moment of conscious service unto others. And Paul is telling us this, not because we're to replicate in any way the atonement. We could never replicate what Jesus does, and not because in any way whatsoever we are trying to make up for some lack in what Jesus did. But Paul is telling us that the way forward in welcoming one another and fellowshipping with one another and serving one another is to cast your eyes on Christ and to see all that he did in his service. Now, this idea, notice... Verse 7, he did it for the glory of God. 
And even though he did do it for us and our salvation, he preeminently did it for God's glory, is at the heart of all true service. Any service that is not done with a sight to the glory of God is not pleasing to God. I want to read the rest of what Voss said here. Voss said, and this is at the turn of the 20th century, there's so much talk of service at the present day, and it is so often deplorably noticeable that the idea people connect with this word is purely that of benevolence and helpfulness to man. If that is the meaning, then the word is not fit to be the synonym of religion. Only such service is true religious service as puts foremost and guards foremost the supreme interest of God. Only service that puts forward and guards first and foremost the supreme interest of God is true service. No other service counts. It doesn't matter. It's driven by pride. It's driven by self. It's driven by trying to attain something or get something or please people or whatever other motive. If God's desires as revealed in scripture, as grounded in Christ in the gospel are not foremost, then it's not acceptable service. Voss says that and nothing else is a true copy of the ministry of Jesus. So you can see that even as Paul is giving us the model, he's giving us the gospel. He's reminding us of what Christ has done for us. Notice that as he unpacks this, that he sets out, secondly, the motivation, as I've already noted, the glory of God. And yet the motivation was also, notice in verse 8, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, this is, you might think, after all these months of being in Romans, we've got all the good stuff and we can just move on now. We got all this stuff about justification and sanctification and adoption and the work of the Spirit and our union with Jesus and power over sin broken in chapter 6 and everything that we have in Christ. We got all the big stuff. Now we can move on. And Paul gives us this rich nugget. And what he tells us is that in Jesus becoming a servant to the Jews, he did so out of motivation to bring God's glory, bring God glory, to show forth his truthfulness and to confirm his promises. Now, what I think Paul is doing is he's telling us that the motivation that lay behind Jesus' work is what ultimately results in our salvation. I don't know if you remember back in chapter 9, the great question that the Jews were asking was, has God been unfaithful to his promises? Has God cast off his promises? Has God not been truthful when he said he was going to save a people? And you'll remember that Paul answers that by saying he has mercy on whom he will and he hardens whom he will and not all Israel are of Israel and that there's a people that he's chosen by grace and there's a remnant according to the election of grace and that it's Isaac, not Esau. And you remember all that Paul sets out from all the scriptures taught very clearly in every page in scripture. And now Paul tells us, and this is remarkable, that Jesus came to serve the Jewish people, not just to serve them, not to gain a kingdom from them, but to confirm the truthfulness of God. Notice verse 8, to, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So, what Jesus came to do, this is the simplest way I can put it, everything you read in the pages of the Old Testament, anything that counts as a promise, and it may be veiled under symbolic language, 
and it may be veiled in language that you don't quite understand when God says he's going to tabernacle over his people. And in Isaiah 4, he'll be like a pillar to them, leading them up. What is there going to be another exodus? Are we going back to the wilderness? And you may not understand it all, but this much you can be sure of, that what Jesus did was he came to embody the fulfillment of every promise in the Old Testament. Every single promise in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul will say this in 2 Corinthians 1. He'll say that all the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God. So that there is no fulfillment of any promise in the Old Testament. There is, there is no promise that God ever uttered in the Old Testament that is not first and foremost fulfilled in Jesus and then fulfilled for Jew and Gentile who believe in him. That's, that is the, I'm going to use a big word, that's the architectonic principle of the Bible. That's the big structural architectural principle that whatever you read in the Old Testament, you can be assured is fulfilled in Jesus. So when God says, I will have mercy on you, he's saying, I will have mercy on you in Jesus. When God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he is saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you in Christ. When he says, I will restore the riches of your land to you, he means that the heavenly land is secured in Jesus. Whether Paul uses the temple imagery or whatever imagery Paul uses, it is not for us to get bogged down in the individual, unique dynamics of each promise, but to understand that Jesus was coming to fulfill those promises. And that means we keep our eyes fixed on him. And we rest assured that what he did on the cross and what he did in his resurrection has secured for me all those promises. You know, we're going to talk here in a minute about the mission of God, but so many make the mistake of thinking that somehow God's plan with Abraham was just for the Jewish people. It was never just for the Jewish people. In fact, God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. It was always God's plan. It was always built into the promises. It was never only about Israel. If we confuse Israel with Jesus, we will be of all people the most miserable. And we will lose out on the riches of all that we have in Christ. And we'll lose out on the fact that there's a fullness in Jesus. And, you know, notice what Paul says in verse 4. This, this ties in perfectly. Notice verse 4. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we may have hope. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying, that's for you. That's for you to read. Not to say, what is God doing with Israel? But to say, what is God doing with me? What has God done in Christ for me? How have I been grafted in? Romans 11, we've been grafted into the same tree. Paul will say in Ephesians, you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. Jesus came and became a slave in a slave yard in Israel, was treated as a slave, was treated as a criminal, so that you and I, who were far off and very undeserving of any of his mercy, might be brought near because he was motivated by a goal to show forth God's truthfulness and to confirm all the promises to all God's people. Notice what Paul says. Notice, he doesn't just say, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs for Israel, and it's very important, he says, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You know, there's so much here. We could have sermons on the Abrahamic covenant. 
and, and how the Abrahamic covenant has everything to do with you if you're in Christ. Paul will say, if you're, if you're Christ, you're Abraham's. You know, Father Abraham had many sons, and I'm one of them, and so are you. Let's all praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Right foot, left foot. Turn around. <laughs> um, we joke, but th- that's, that's the riches of the Bible. That's the riches of the Bible. That's our history. Those are our promises. Why are they our promises? Because Jesus poured his life out in service to secure them, to fulfill them, to confirm them, and to extend them out to whoever believes in him. And there's no promise, and I'm going to say this boldly, and you may disagree. I do not believe there's one promise in the Old Testament that does not directly relate to you in Christ. And so Paul tells us that the result of Christ's motivation to bring glory to God and the result of Jesus' motivation to show forth God's truthfulness and to confirm the promises results in the Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy. Notice that reciprocal thing. And this is, how does this relate to you in the body? Well, when we serve each other for the glory of God, that results in those we're serving glorifying God for his mercy. That's, I think that's what Paul's saying, is that there is a reciprocal way this works. When we act selfish, then we motivate others to act selfish. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul would say, don't be deceived. Little, little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but um, God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. That seemed like a small thing. They, they, they lied about, you know, we sold this land and we're going to give so much, and they lied about how much they gave. Seems like a small thing. God struck them dead. And um, several old writers make the point that God destroyed Ananias and Sapphira lest that sort of hypocrisy spread through the church. So you can see how it works in reverse. Here's what Paul's saying. Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order that the Gentiles might also know those privileges and that they might glorify God. What we're doing this morning ought to be giving God glory for the mercy that we receive because Jesus poured his life out in service for us. That's the that's a result in 2014 far greater than the impact of John Calvin is the impact of Jesus pouring his life out in service so that sinners like us who were Gentiles, who were far off, who were outside the covenants of promise, who were away from the mercy of God, who had no claim to any of the promises, might be brought in and given the full privilege of sons and daughters of God and the everlasting inheritance and that we might praise God for that. My wife this morning put on... Um, oh, help me out, hon. Kristen and Keith Geddes playing it loudly, and it was stirring up my heart to praise God, listening to them sing loud praises and the music rising, and, and the truth about Christ permeating my mind this morning was stirring me up to give glory to God. And all of that is because Jesus lived a life of self-sacrificial service. And I want to say this this morning. You may be the kind that thinks, you know, I'm, I'm just not that. I'm not wired like that. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not the nicest person. You know, I've had a hard life. Um, you know, people haven't been very nice to me. Let me remind you that Jesus is God. He's God. And he could have demanded that everybody serve him, but he said in, in Mark ten forty five, the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Finally, this morning, I want us to note the mission. Notice how Paul seamlessly moves out from how we are to mutually accept each other through the model of Christ and the motivation of Christ. And notice now the mission. And Paul masterfully, again, strings together numbers of Old Testament citations. Notice there from 1 Samuel 22, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And then again, quoting Deuteronomy, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And then Out of the Psalms, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And then Isaiah, the root of Jesse, will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. And in him will the Gentiles hope. And what's happening is Paul has picked passages of Scripture from every part of the Old Testament. Took it from the law in Deuteronomy. He took it from the Psalms. He took it from the prophets. And he showed that everywhere in the Old Testament... Even though it was clouded to the minds of many, and many were blinded to it, God's purpose was for the gospel to go to the nations. God God has a missionary mind and a missionary will and a missionary heart, and God's purpose is for the gospel to go out. Now, you might say, okay, we're moving from you telling us we need to care for each other and mutually receive each other. Now we're talking about missions. Why not just save that till next week? Because I think... That if we fail in the first part, we'll never get to the second part. That if we fail to learn to love and honor each other here and now in the fellowship, we will fail miserably in taking the gospel out. Why do we not bear witness more faithfully to Christ? I think part of the reason is we do not mutually encourage and edify and receive each other in the body. And so we're not going to have any zeal for anybody outside if we don't have zeal for the people of God in the church. I think this is where Paul's going. I think he's first dealing with the need for members of the church to receive each other, but then to see that they've been received and then to see that God's purpose is to go out. And he is an outward focus, God, out of a fellowship of mutual acceptance to call men and women to Christ who receives them. Now, I got to quote John Calvin. It's Reformation Sunday. I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that John Calvin, um, I have no idea how they planted 2,150 churches in seven years, eight years. I mean, I've, I've literally sat at home wondering, like, how in the world did that happen? But I'm just trying to plant one church. I'd like to plant other churches. Hopefully we will plant churches together. They planted 2,150 churches. That means, at bottom, they gave a lot of time and prayer and labor and money to seeing that accomplished. My speculation is that it was Calvin's pastoral ministry in Geneva and what was happening in the congregation there that resulted in the great outpouring of God's spirit in church planning in France. I want to read to you a quote that he made. This is uh, Calvin on Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves as together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Calvin says, having said not forsaking the assembling together, he adds, but exhorting one another, by which... He intimates that all the godly ought ought by all means possible to exert themselves in the work of gathering together the church on every side. For we are called by the Lord on this condition, that everyone should afterwards strive 
to lead others to the truth, to restore the wandering to the right way, to extend a helping hand to the fallen, to win over those who are without. But if we ought to bestow so much labor on those who are yet aliens to the flock of Christ, how much more diligence is required in exhorting the brethren whom God has already joined to us? I think that's a remarkable statement. He's saying if the goal is to extend a hand to the falling, to win those who are outside of Christ, who are aliens to Christ, how much more exertion should be done to those who have already been joined to Christ in our service to them, in our exhorting them, in our loving them, in our welcoming them, in our caring them, in a mutual acceptance of one another, in a warm-hearted embrace of one another, nothing worse than cliques forming in churches, nothing worse than division and schism, all which come from selfishness and party spirits in churches, the private conversations, the discontentment, the turning in on yourself and the private enjoyment of fellowship, a self-absorbed fellowship, none of that. But that our purpose would be to give ourselves wholly to serving those who have already been joined to Christ and then seeing it trickle out in our desire to see more joined to Jesus who don't know that mercy yet. Now, I'll give you a word of comfort as we close. Notice that as Paul ends the section on the mission, he ends it with that quote there out of Isaiah 11. And notice the end of that quote. He says that the root of Jesse, who is Christ, obviously will come. He who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Now, what does God want from you besides everything else that has been said in Romans 14 and 15? God wants you and me to be a people of hope, and joy and peace. Now, what's interesting to me is those three words, hope, joy, and peace, are all used back in chapter 5 and elsewhere where Paul's dealing with the justification that we have in Christ. Those are all the fruits of his work of justifying us. Having been justified, we have peace with God. We rejoice in hope. Having been justified, we have peace, we rejoice in hope. What God wants you to have as a fellowship, and I think that this sums up everything, is that when we are hoping and we have joy and peace and believing all that God has done for us in Christ, that we abound by the power of the Holy Spirit, we abound as a fellowship, we will abound in service, and we will abound in missions. I don't know what you think about any of this. I don't know what your thoughts are through the week, if how you think about your role in this congregation, how you think about your role in relation to God, um, if you think about your motivations, what motivates you. I think, I think one of the very clear applications we need to make this morning is, you know, what motivates us? What drives us? Are we driven by desiring God to be glorified? You know, I, I pray... Because there's many times I feel like I don't know what it means to seek God's glory in all that I do. And I pray that God would make me understand what it is to seek his glory. To actually seek his will and his honor and his glory and his praise in actions with others. We need to be, we need to be resolute in that. We need to be determined in that. We need to ask God to remove from us selfish motives. We need to ask God to fix our eyes on Christ. And 
and to see all that he's done for us. Um, this is impossible for somebody that hasn't come to Christ. If you've never come to Christ, none of this is possible. You will go on in selfish motives till you stand before God on that great day of judgment. God doesn't want that. God is, as we heard last week, he is pleading with men to be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Um, secondly, I want to ask you if your heart is for unity in the body and service to others and welcoming those who come into this fellowship, and if your heart is for the, the salvation of those around you, do you, you know, rub shoulders with people every day thoughtlessly, not ever thinking about their spiritual condition, that the people that we see around us in this church and outside, they are eternal beings. My, if we would get that, if we would actually view people that way, how that would change everything in our lives. Finally, I want to encourage you to be believing in the Lord Jesus and knowing that God is a God of hope and that God has accomplished everything in Christ. That's one of the glorious things about this text. He's done it all. He sent his son to be a servant to confirm his truthfulness and his promises so that you might have hope in the God of hope. I don't know about you, but when I hear that the holy God, who is infinitely righteous and holy and just, likes to be called the God of hope, wow, that's a great thing. That, that gives me lots of joy that the God who should send all of us to hell forever has said, I am the God of hope and I want you to have joy and peace in believing and I want you to abound in hope and I want you to be a hope-filled congregation and I want you to be a, a people on mission full of hope that God is reconciling people and that he is welcoming people to Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of hope and that you are a God of peace and that you have made peace through the blood of the cross, and that you have sent your Son to be a servant to the circumcised, that we might receive your mercy and give you glory. And Father, we pray that you would heal us of all of our selfishness, that you would forgive us of all of our um, inwardness and self-motivated desires and interests, that you would teach us to learn from Christ, to have the mind of Christ, and to seek to bring men and women to him. We pray that you would make us a church that is welcoming and kind and compassionate, a church that loves to welcome those that are unlike us and those that we may look down upon, that, our God, you would remind us of what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus, how you've welcomed us, how you've redeemed us, how your soul, Lord Jesus, was made an offering for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. We pray that you would mature us and that you would motivate us and you would send us out to bring you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.